Short Rounds. Hi, y'all, and welcome once again to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I'm your host, James Hauser, and whew, I hope you enjoyed the last few weeks of happy fun times on the Crimea. Only rainbows and unicorns over here in the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. But today we're going to wrap it all up with a couple of postscript short rounds, stuff I didn't have time or room for in the main series. There are two of these, so don't forget to check the feed for the other one. It's all about army rations and food and drink. But this short round is about a region and figure that I wanted to include in the main series, but there wasn't space. Plus, it's mostly its own story, like a weird side plot that briefly intersects with the Crimean War. Like, you know, when people from the CSI cast show up in an episode of Law and Order. You know, a crossover. So this short round is about the Caucasian War, 1817-1864, a guerrilla war fought by the tribesmen of the North Caucasus against the Russian Empire. Its legendary leader was Imam Shamil, a Muslim cleric turned guerrilla fighter and one of the most famous anti-imperial figures of the early 19th century. The Lion of Dagestan, the Geronimo of Chechnya, would challenge the Tsar of all the Russias for the title of Lord of the Caucasus. As always, this is not just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff going on. This short round has a lot of connections to current events, so if that's really stressing you out like it's stressing me out, be forewarned. Although I probably should have put that warning in the last episode, if I was going to put it anywhere. <laughs> Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. All my sources are still on my website under the big Crimean source post, so if you want to know where I got my info, that's where. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. When you think about the age of colonialism, the age of imperialism, you probably think of Spain, Portugal, France, Great Britain, the Mike Tyson of global empire, or even the United States, and all those are fair. But we don't usually know the history of Russian empire, Russian imperialism. Folks just kind of assume that Russia has always been as big as they are, that their massive borders are natural. But no, the Tsars spent centuries conquering, subduing, and expanding their realm in the West, in the South, and in the East. I think this isn't widely known because a lot of this happened in areas with unfamiliar geography, places and names that have no meaning to us. Russia really only shows up in high school history books pretty much fully formed, and we'll see how Russia came to be. But Russian imperialism bears a lot of similarities to the Spanish in America, or the United States and its westward expansion. Russia even had its conquistadors, like the Cossack chieftain Yermak Timofeyevich, who began the conquest of Siberia in the 1580s, paving the way for Russia to expand to the Pacific. This makes him like a Russian equivalent to Hernan Cortes, who conquered the Aztecs in Mexico. And there were native people in these regions. These were not unoccupied areas. There were native peoples that Russia subdued or exterminated. We know the Aztecs and Incas, the Cherokee and Sioux. We know that story. But few people know about the Buryats, Bashkirs, Yakuts, or Tuvans. Like Spain and the Americas, Russia didn't just conquer. They colonized and Christianized. And this often involved deporting and importing populations, a, little, a literal institutionalized ethnic cleansing. Mass relocation of populations is a very old Russian imperial strategy. Some ethnic minorities giving you trouble? Well, deport half of them to Siberia. Problem solved. 
oh, the area is depopulated now? We'll bring in some Russian colonists to Christianize and Russify the land. We're Now they're Russian. <laughs> this is the strategy Russia used in the Crimea after the Crimean War. Many of the Crimean Tatars were expelled and replaced with Russian colonists. Crimea has only been ethnically Russian since about the 1860s, and Stalin deported most of the remaining Tatars during his regime. No more Tatar problem. So no, Russia did not gain its current borders naturally or peacefully. And Russia's big imperial project in the early Victorian age, its frontier, its wild west, was the Caucasus. When I say Caucasian, I don't mean white people. I mean the people who live in the Caucasus, an enormous mountainous area the size of Texas, divided into two major regions by the Great Caucasus Range along the current Georgia-Russian border. The South Caucasus includes the modern states of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. The North Caucasus lies mostly within the Russian Federation, that is, that stub on the bottom of Russia if you see it on the map. It was within the North Caucasus, the lands of Circassia, Chechnya, and Dagestan, that Russia would fight the Caucasian War. The Caucasus is amazingly diverse. The terrain is stunning. Enormous mountains, deep valleys and gorges, open plains and plateaus and jagged cliffs, massive pine forests and lush valleys, snowy glaciers and arid deserts. And when I say mountains, these are mountain mountains. The Caucasus beat the Appalachians up and takes their lunch money. It is a crazy mosaic of at least 27 major languages and over 50 distinct ethnic groups. The Georgians, the Armenians, the Azerbaijanis, the Chechens, the Avars, the Lesgans, the Kabardians, and guys, those are the big ones. There are entire regions where each village might speak its own different dialect. Duolingo is not going to help you out here. There's also religious diversity with Eastern Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox, Shia Muslims, Sunni Muslims, Jews, you name it. It should be no surprise that the Caucasus has had a troubled history. Intertribal and ethnic warfare has always been very common, usually featuring the taking of prisoners to be used as hostages or sold to Muslim slave markets. The Caucasus was also a frontier area between big empires, even in ancient times. The Romans and the Parthians, the Byzantines and the Turks, the Ottomans and the Persians, but then new invaders came from the north. Russia's slow conquest of the Caucasus began during the 1790s as part of Catherine the Great's general drive to the south. By the early 1800s, Russia had annexed both the North and the South Caucasus, including Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. But putting the flag on a hill and saying this is Russian territory is one thing. The Caucasus had been placed behind the Russian border, but that did not mean it was conquered. Opposition to Russian rule came early and fiercely, and almost all of it was in the wild, broken, unruly North Caucasus, the areas of Circassia, Chechnya, and Dagestan. Russia's opponents were the Caucasian Highlanders, the fierce tribes of the high mountains. This was the Caucasian War. Guys, this would be the longest sustained war in the history of Russia. Hundreds of thousands of men, tons of weapons, enormous amounts of money would be sent to subdue Russia's new frontier, to fight the cornucopia of angry native peoples who wanted to kick the invader out of their land. You can look at this as kind of Russia's equivalent to the American Indian Wars of the 19th century. A lot of the problems, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the same tactics that Americans used against the Indians, Russia would use against the Caucasian tribes. You might think, James, Russia's pretty big and strong. How do they not solve this problem quickly? 
Well, remember, they had to get big, and the Caucasus is also enormous. There was a 700-mile perimeter of lonely fortresses and garrison towns across the plains, valleys, and peaks of the Caucasus. Russian garrisons that were the only imperial presence for miles around, isolated in a sea of highlanders. Some of the biggest North Caucasus cities today were originally built as garrison settlements. These included the North Caucasus city of Vladikavkaz, literally translated as Lord of the Caucasus, and Chechnya's capital of Grozny, literally translated as Awesome or Fearsome. The key Russian priority was the Georgian military highway, the only good road connecting the North and South Caucasus. It runs from Vladikavkaz in the north to Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia in the south. The highway was extremely vulnerable to raids, with long wagon trains moving down the highway guarded by Russian soldiers, always minutes away from being bushwhacked and looted by the Highlanders. Russia imported an entire friendly people, the Ossetians, so they could serve as protectors for the highway. Another Russian case of ethnic scrabble that is still causing problems in the 21st century, with the Georgian breakaway province of South Ossetia. There were two main fronts of the Caucasian War. West of the military highway, the main resistance to Russian rule was undertaken by a Muslim people called the Circassians. Circassian women were famous across the world for their mysterious beauty. There would be uh, circus shows in America for decades after this war showing, you know, a mysterious Circassian woman who was probably uh, an Irish girl named Jane from like the Bronx or somewhere. But still, there was this legend of the beauty of the Circassian women. The Circassians were united by a shared ethnic identity and language which bound them together against Russian rule. And their territories were especially important because they lay on the eastern shore of the Black Sea. This meant that they, the British were constantly slipping them guns and money. The Russians intercepted a few British ships running guns to the Circassians in the 1830s and 1840s, which helped increase tensions between the two countries leading to the Crimean War. The Circassian resistance lasted over 101 years, waxing and waning, but always a serious problem. But the Circassians were very decentralized, with no real leader or organization. It was east of the Georgian military highway, in Chechnya and Dagestan, that the Lord of the Caucasus would emerge. Shamil was born in 1797 in the mountain fortress of Gimri in Dagestan. It's hard to know much about his early life because so much of his story is shrouded in myth and legend. He was an Avar, a member of the largest ethnic group in Dagestan, from a fairly well-off family. He studied to be a Muslim cleric and soon joined a growing religious revival within the occupied Caucasus. Popular religious movements are a common response to imperial invasion, a way of rejecting the order that the imperial power tries to impose. The North Caucasus had been largely Muslim for centuries, but this had been very lukewarm. Old tribal practices still existed and blended with Islam in unique ways. But starting in the 1820s, a more radical version of Islam emerged as a reaction to Russia's colonization and high taxation. This was a version of Sufi Islam the Russians called Muridism. Sufi movements generally embraced more mystical and fundamentalist ideals than mainline Sunnis, including a very strict adherence to Sharia law. As scary as that might sound to 21st century Americans, Sharia law could be downright progressive compared to old Caucasian tribal law. Many Islamic religious leaders embraced the New Murid movement for two reasons. First, as a reassertion of their identity in the face of Russian rule. Second, because of the massive diversity of their land. 
The Northeast Caucasus is home to a complex patchwork of peoples, including Chechens, Lesgans, Avars, Dargans, Kumiks, Azerbaijanis. Language and ethnicity are not unifying factors. The only thing that could unify these people was faith. Granted, not every Caucasian or even every Muslim was a murid. Many of the old Caucasian nobility saw the murids as a threat to their power or their old traditions, and some allied with Russia. After all, a faraway tyrant might be less of a problem than one that is right next door. <laughs> Throughout the Caucasian War, the rebels fought other Caucasians as much as the Russians. Chechen versus Chechen, Dagestani versus Dagestani, Muslim versus Muslim. Guerrilla wars are almost always civil wars as well. But Shamil wasn't originally in charge. In 1829, the first Murid leader, the charismatic Ghazi Muhammad, called on all faithful Muslims to rally to the banner of jihad against the Russian menace. But he was killed when the Russians assaulted and destroyed his main fortress of Gimri in 1832. Only two Murids escaped the sack of Gimri, one of whom was the 35-year-old Shamil. According to legend, Shamil leapt over the heads of the Russian soldiers confronting them, and then killed all three of them with his sword. When the fourth stabbed him in the lung with his bayonet, Shamil grabbed the barrel of the musket, hacked the man to death, then pulled the bayonet out and jumped off the walls into the forest. This daring escape would be a cornerstone of Shamil's legend, seen as a sign that he bore the divine favor of Allah. By 1834, Shamil was selected as the new leader of the Caucasian Imamate, the Murid Successionist Movement. Imam Shamil faced a major challenge. His followers were only a fraction of the Chechen and Dagestani populations, and Russian columns were scouring the area for him. The war that Shamil would wage for the next 25 years would be one of Tsarist Russia's greatest military challenges. Because the Russian army was not built for this. They were built to fight other European powers, not a fast-moving guerrilla movement. They were, their lumbering, slow-moving infantry columns with their artillery and heavy carts were the wrong tool for the job. The Caucasian Highlanders were some of the most natural light cavalry in the world. They knew their mountains like the back of their hands, and their hit-and-run tactics were both demoralizing and effective. Russian troops would attack Shamil's fortresses, but Shamil could just vanish into the high mountains and pine forests time and again. The Russians tried to negotiate with him, but he refused to accept any terms. The Lord of the Caucasus only grew stronger. See, the real war wasn't in the mountains, the valleys, or even the fortresses. Like any guerrilla war, it was being waged in the hearts and minds of the North Caucasus peoples. Each Chechen and Dagestani village had to decide where its loyalties lay. The Russians could not be everywhere at once, and the villagers feared Shamil's retaliation if they cooperated with the invader. Plus, if he believed he could win, if you believe that he was winning, you might be more willing to side with him. More and more people came to his fold out of both admiration and fear. Even if the elites usually stuck by the Tsar, the people were leaning towards Shamil. Enough was enough. It was time to end this guy. In 1839, a Russian force of 13,500 men advanced on Shamil's headquarters at Akulgo in Dagestan. This was a crazy fortress on a peak, surrounded by deep cliffs and gorges, with only a few rickety bridges connecting it to the cliffside paths. The Russians began the siege on June 29, 1839, and weeks of combat followed, Shamil's 1,000 combatants fighting fiercely from the peaks. I really cannot stress enough how insane this battlefield was. There was melee fighting on literal cliff sides, guns firing over massive gorges, and near-vertical fights up steep inclines. 
At one point, a Russian column was ambushed by women and children wielding knives and rocks, and the Tsar's soldiers fell down the cliffs to their deaths. Rooting through caves and gullies, storming towers and swarming bridges, the Russians eventually overwhelmed the defenders of Akulgo. House by house, hole by hole, they cleared the stronghold. Women, including Shamil's sister Fatima, threw themselves and their children over the cliffs. Over 1,000 corpses were counted and 900 prisoners were taken, but not one of them was Imam Shamil. He had escaped yet again. Slipping down a cliff with his pregnant wife and his young son, they vanished into the mountain trails. The Russian Pyrrhic victory at Akulgo only made Shamil more legendary, and it also taught him an important lesson. Defending a fixed position was a losing game. Mobility was his friend, and Russian firepower could be overwhelming if it was concentrated. It was time to fight this war by his rules. Shamil relocated to Chechnya and began to rebuild his movement. After only a year, he was back, baby, as dangerous as ever. The Russians had thought Shamil was a goner, but like a game of whack-a-mole, he kept popping up. The Caucasian War descended into a massive game of raids and counter-raids, with Shamil destroying isolated Russian outposts and expanding his territory. Soon he controlled, honestly, most of Dagestan. Every time the Russians advanced into his domain, swarms of tribesmen hounded them through the snowy forests until they were forced to retreat. By the early 1840s, the Circassians to the west were also winning multiple victories. The Russians were losing ground, their morale was sinking, Shamil was at his height. One Russian general described Shamil's military religious character, the same by which at the beginning of Islam, Muhammad's sword shook three quarters of the universe. Shamil just had this spiritual uh, warrior mystique that seemed to remind so many people of the founder of Islam. So in 1844, General Mikhail Vorontsov took command in the Caucasus with one mission, deal with Shamil once and for all. Tsar Nicholas I wanted a full-on reckless assault on Shamil's stronghold at Dargo. Under pressure from his Tsar, knowing it was a bad idea, Vorontsov agreed to the attack. The huge Russian column set out on May 31, 1845, with 21 battalions of infantry, 42 guns, 1,600 local cavalry, and 1,000 Caucasian militia. Shamil shadowed them the whole way into the mountains, refusing to give battle but harassing them from the forests and hills. The Russians reached Dargo on July 4th, and after a brief fight, found the stronghold deserted. The Caucasians had vanished into the mountains. The problem for Vorontsov was that he, now he had to go back. And then Shamil struck. The Chechens and Dagestanis felled trees in the Russian path, slowing their march, leaving them open to snipers, ambushes, nighttime attacks. As morale plummeted and paranoia took hold, the Russians began to panic. The retreat disintegrated into clumps of men, easily wiped out by the mirrored cavalry. Vorontsov's men had to fight their way out from Dargo. They lost 3,321 men and three generals by the time they escaped on July 18th. The Dargo expedition was a Russian disaster and Shamil's greatest victory. But this failure marked a major change in Russian strategy. Vorontsov was a perceptive commander who understood what it took to defeat Shamil. Not a strategy of just go take the castle, that's how you defeat a conventional enemy. What was needed was a counterinsurgency strategy. Patience, native cooperation, and absolute ruthlessness. Rather than a lightning strike at the enemy headquarters, Vorontsov slowly eroded Shamil's position. 
He worked closely with local leaders and won villages back over to the Russians. And he used a policy of scorched earth against areas that refused to comply, cutting down the Chechen forests, laying waste to crops and villages, and building military roads into subdued areas. Vorontsov also deported large numbers of hostile tribesmen into the Russian interior, that good old Russian tactic. If this sounds harsh, well, doesn't it also kind of sound like how the USA dealt with the Indians? A little bit? We destroyed crops, killed the buffalo herds, used scorched earth, built roads, and deported them. What was the Trail of Tears? What was the relocation of the Nez Perce? This is a very similar war to the war the United States waged against the American Indian. And like the Indians, this harsh strategy worked. Over the late 1840s and early 1850s, Shamil's power declined. Hundreds of villages defected back to Russia. By the early 1850s, the Lord of the Caucasus was at his lowest point yet. Which brings us to the Crimean War. Shamil wanted to take advantage of the outbreak of the Crimean War, use Russian distraction to his advantage. But by 1853, he was much weaker than he had been 10 years ago. He sent a pleading letter to the Ottoman Sultan asking for assistance. We, your subjects, have lost our strength, having fought the enemies of our faith for a long time. We have lost all our means and now stand in a disastrous position. But at least his PR campaign was working. As the Caucasian resistance continued, anti-Russian European politicians had praised their courage and ideals, and in the process kind of misrepresented the nature of the resistance. Circassians and Murids were held up as brave, liberty-loving peoples. The fragmented nature of the Circassian resistance and Shamil's radical Muslim ideals tended to get glossed over for propaganda reasons, kind of like American support for the Afghan rebels in the 1980s. Lord Palmerston, the anti-Russian British politician and future prime minister, had an independent Circassia as one of his ambitious goals for a victory over Russia, although what that would look like and who would even be in charge was a pretty darn good question. Shamil's continued resistance made the Russian war effort during the Crimea that much more difficult, since he was always back there, posing a major threat to their supply lines. As the Tsar's generals gathered troops on the Ottoman border, Shamil moved 10,000 tribesmen to threaten the Georgia military highway, drawing troops away from the main battlefront. 1853's maneuvers didn't achieve much, but they achieved something. They didn't achieve enough, but they achieved something. But Shamil knew that the Crimean War might be his best and only chance to break the Russian hold on the Caucasus, no matter how weak he had become. Like, if it's ever going to happen, it's now. He had received advanced Minier rifles from British shipments, and his army was better armed than ever before. In July 1854, Shamil gathered 15,000 men for the greatest offensive push of his career. A drive on the Georgian capital of Tbilisi, Russia's power center in the Caucasus. He came within 60 kilometers of the city, only lightly held by around 2,000 Russian troops. But the Ottomans failed to achieve their part of the bargain, their other side of the attack. Their defeat at Kurukderi, which I described in Crimea Part 4, forced Shamil to retreat. On his way back, Shamil attacked the palace of the Georgian prince Chavchavads, taking the prince's wife and sister-in-law prisoner. Like I said, the Caucasus had a long and proud tradition of prisoner-taking. Shamil took the women hostage to exchange them for his son, a captive at the Tsar's court. And this worked. He got his son back and gave the women back unharmed. But this horse trading caused a backlash in his European public opinion ranking. How scandalous. A kidnapping of European noblewomen? Shamil had to assure angered British emissaries, like, like, dude, this is just how things roll up here. 
The British played with the idea of sending troops to the Caucasus to help Shamil throughout the Crimean War. But the Crimea itself took their undivided attention, and with the fall of Sevastopol and the beginning of peace negotiations, the Caucasians were left out in the cold. One of those what-ifs of 1856. If 1856, the war continues into that year, do the British send troops to the Caucasus and maybe help Shamil win his independence? But as we know, that didn't happen. The Treaty of Paris in 1856 was silent on the the status of the Caucasus. Shamil had lost his last chance to strike Russia at her weakest point, and now the Russians were getting serious. Prince Alexander Baryatinsky, an aggressive and skillful commander, picked up where Vorontsov had left off in 1856. He had more resources than any previous Russian commander, almost all of them veteran soldiers from the Crimea and the Caucasus, and he used these to slowly strangle Shamil's resistance. He used a systematic step-by-step strategy to back the Muslim guerrilla into a corner, subduing Chechnya first, one village at a time. Then the Russians began to place pressure on the strongholds in Dagestan. By 1858, deep penetration columns, much lighter, faster, and more maneuverable than they had been in the past, were hunting Shamil down through the mountains. His allies abandoning him, his territory in ruins, and his army deserting, Shamil knew the game was up. Rather than go out in a blaze of glory, he surrendered to Baryatinsky on August 25th, 1859. Shamil's surrender actually angered a lot of his more radical uh, subordinates, many of whom would continue to fight for the next couple years and would eventually be killed in the process. This started actually a series of bad blood between the Chechens and the Dagestanis. The Chechens, feeling like the Dagestanis, represented by Shamil, had sold them out. But surprisingly, very surprisingly, Shamil was treated extremely well. His resistance had been so legendary that he was something of a celebrity in Russia, kind of like how American Indian leaders like Chief Joseph and Geronimo became American celebrities. Shamil lived with his family in fairly luxurious exile. By the will of the Almighty, the absolute governor, I have fallen into the hands of unbelievers. The great emperor has settled me here in a tall, spacious house with carpets and all the necessities. Shamil was even allowed to perform the pilgrimage to Mecca before passing away quietly in 1871. The Circassians were not so lucky. The Russians crushed the Circassian resistance in 1864, but unlike Chechnya and Dagestan, where they had a lot of support in the local population, which was the reason they won, these people were too dangerous to be left intact. What followed was the Circassian Genocide. Hundreds of thousands of the Circassians were expelled, most migrating to the Ottoman Empire, while others were raped, tortured, and slaughtered en masse. Around 90% of all Circassians were gone, exiled, or murdered by the 1870s, possibly more than a million people. One Russian reported that you could walk for miles in what was once Circassia and see dozens of abandoned villages without a living soul for miles. The Circassians still survive today in ethnic enclaves and isolated pockets across the Middle East and the Balkans, the former territories of the Ottoman Empire. They, some of them still speak their language and remember their identities, but their homeland now speaks Russian. Another successful project. No more Circassian problem. The Circassian genocide spelled an end to the Caucasian War. Much like the American West, the native leaders were celebrated as heroes, even as their peoples were destroyed, expelled, and exterminated. 
Much like the American West, the Caucasus became Russia's romantic frontier, its mountains and mysteries eulogized in poetry and novellas, including Alexander Pushkin's epic poem, Prisoner of the Caucasus. And like the American West, it was colonized, Christianized, and folded into the great Russian land empire. The bloodstains on the mountains dried, but memories take longer to heal. In the 1990s, the collapse of the Soviet Union inspired the Caucasians to try their luck again. There was an independent Ukraine, Armenia, Lithuania, Kazakhstan. Why not an independent Chechnya or Dagestan? Militants rose up in both countries, sometimes allied with terrorist or Islamist organizations, to try and achieve Shamil's dream. One of the main Chechen freedom fighters slash terrorists, a no-joke out-and-out terrorist who helped plan multiple terror attacks in Russia throughout the early 2000s, was Shamil Basayev, named for his region's great hero who had once been Lord of the Caucasus. Once again, in this new Caucasian war, the Russians struggled at first. The first Chechen war in 1994 was a bloody fiasco. But in 1999, a new man took charge. Spearheading the new offensive was the recently appointed Prime Minister Vladimir Putin, who sent the Russian army into the city of Grozny to destroy the Caucasian resistance. They employed very familiar and very old tactics of scorched earth, mass destruction, deportation, and near genocide. Meet the new Tsar, same as the old Tsar. By the end of the Second Chechen War, Grozny was a burnt-out ruin, sort of a preview of the fate that awaited Mariupol two decades later. Meet the new Russian imperialism, same as the old Russian imperialism. Vladimir Putin and his puppet ruler in Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, reign today as the lords of the Caucasus. They are the incumbents. Who knows, though? Somewhere in the mountains, the spirit of Shamil undoubtedly lives. I'd say we haven't heard the last shots from the mountains of Russia's Wild West. Thanks a bunch for listening today. If you've learned anything, it's how to kidnap people for fun and profit. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tell your enemies. You don't have any enemies? Go make some. Check my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com for all today's sources and some additional commentary. I'm on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary. I want to know what you want to hear about more. What do you want me to talk about more? And finally, guys, don't forget to check out this week's other short round about the food and drink, the rations of the Crimean War. And we're also almost at the end of the season. See you same place, same time next week for the final episode of Unknown Soldiers Podcast, Season 1.